Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. throats and back and everything did you see the video of the raccoons no on twitter oh my god like till you see these raccoons <laughs> this person was like walking home i guess and he came across these two raccoons oh my god were they doing like they were doing something like I human think, right I think karen retweeted yeah it. it was like this <laughs> oh my god there's so many rodents this is what decadence means <laughs> i love it like just that rat has big ass balls i remember thinking that was the hamster's butt cheeks too <laughs> remember we had mice and their balls were bigger than their head <laughs> i thought it was their butt here it is <laughs> just wait <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> it looks like a little human dress like a raccoon it's a costume it literally looks like it <laughs> they don't see us <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so fun? What do you think animals talk about us? Right? (laughs) What is this cat over here saying? Well, one more time. For good measure. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Oh my god. What are we doing? Hello? Hey! (laughs) That was your intermission. Um, Welcome to the Women of Death Row, sponsored by... Raccoons (laughs) Raccoons <laughs> and hamsters. <laughs> They'll eat your garbage, but they're really cute. Across from me is Marielle. Hello, and that is Amanda. She's my sister. Yeah, we're recording on a Friday today. So if you're going out tonight, um, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Saves you money. All right, shall we? Top. Why does that happen? It's because I think of things when I'm driving and I can't write it down. Oh. My thing is I think of things when I'm in bed, like before I fall asleep. Mm, don't remind me of that episode of Seinfeld, remember I- when he thought of the joke as he was like going to bed, and so he was like, uh, "Oh, I'm gonna start writing my the best jokes I think uh-huh. of when I'm going to sleep," but he couldn't figure out the next day what the fuck he said. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like all of a sudden he's taking it to everybody. Like, what, the fuck what do you think this says? <laughs> no, that's awesome. Hmm. Who's going first? I'll go. I can't. I la- so I was um looking at like women on death row, googling it, and Velma Barfield came up, and I can't remember if that was your story or mine. That was yours. Was it? So <laughs> now that we've got our primal screaming out of the way. Yep. I'm gonna be telling you about Florida's Black Widow murderer, aka Judy Buenoano. Oh, <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> At this point, we've probably talked about three Black Widows, right? And so I was like, how many women are called the Black Widow? Apparently there's like 10. Oh, really? That at least have been reported or convicted that I counted. A lot of this info comes from one source that I found on Murderpedia. 
It's called Judius Judy Bueno Año, Florida's Black Widow from the Fight the Death Penalty USA. But <laughs> don't mind me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all. I don't know what is happening right now, but I took some pictures for record. So if you Venmo me three dollars, you'll get them. Yes. <laughs> so I can't yeah, do this show help. with this. <laughs> I was like, let's see if this helps. It's just somatic tension in my fucking shoulders. I think you just need to do some bilateral stimulation. Shake your tits, whatever. What you? Okay. So um, this source is very much biased towards anti-death penalty. So, but I think they they state facts, they cite sources too. But we are also anti-death penalty, so right. take that into consideration. And then, of course, Wikipedia and Murderpedia got some picks. The picks are always on Murderpedia are always yes. Okay. So some quick facts: Judy Bueno Año. Later, you'll learn why that's funny. <laughs> um, the first woman executed via electric chair in the U.S. since oh 1957, when. Rhonda Bell Martin was executed. She was the last one yeah. before Judy. And then Judy was the first woman executed in Florida since 1848. Holy shit. And she succeeded a young girl named Celia, who was executed for killing the man who enslaved her. Wow. Yep. Fuck. And as of July 2000, she was on death row with four other women, including Velma Barfield, Carla Faye Tucker. I thought it was, I was going to have four, two other names, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Carla Faye Tucker? Mm-hmm. I thought she was in Texas. Carla Faye Tucker was Florida, right? Because Carla Faye Tucker was on Death Row with my chick, Kendarly Routier, and that's Texas. Oh. I misread. <laughs> I thought it sounded wrong. So I just found the source. <laughs> anyway, you can edit that out. That would be great. <laughs> I'm amazed I caught that. I'm, you know... It's only because I just did that story last week. So, Judy's early life, you know, a big common theme when, that we've shared, like, among, like, the 32 other stories about women who have been sentenced to death is, like, this big T trauma. So, she's no exception to that. So, they keep that in mind of why maybe people do the th- things that they do. And I was actually talking to the girl that did my nails today, and she said, you know, we were talking about, like, other, what other ways could there be, but it's like you... You got to want to be able to engage in whatever behavior therapy it is to really prevent that. But like, it's what do you do to people that actually kill others? It's like, so you're going to kill someone who killed someone to show killing people is wrong? Right. It's stupid. Anyway. And it's incredibly expensive. Yeah. So actually, I read recently that the actual drug used for lethal injection, the combination of drugs costs less than like a dollar per use, I guess. Like, the actual medicines aren't that expensive, but mm-hmm. it costs taxpayers, like, 50 grand. Right. Well, yeah, and the you have to pay all of the people who work in the mm-hmm. courts. You have to pay law enforcement. You have to pay everybody yeah. who works for the state or the county or whatever. Right. Like, so, any part of a system, it has to be paid for, and people have money, and it's like... These trials go on for, like, 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how many court fees you pay for a fucking speeding ticket? Multiply that by, I don't know, because I'm not a math major, but it's a lot. It's real big. Yeah. So keep that in mind, too. So she was born Judius V. Welty in Quanah, Texas in 1943. She's an Aries. Her father was a farm laborer. That's all it says. She described her mother, who was also named Judius, as a member of some non-existent Mesquite Apache tribe. So she claimed to be of some sort of, like, Latina ethnic descent. Damn it. So she's... All right. (laughs) What? Is that not her last name, or did she marry a Latino? 
Just I'll I let know you, tell story. you gotta wait because it's good. <laughs> oh my god! So Judy's her mom passed away when she was around four, and after her mom died, Judy and her three other siblings were separated. So she and her younger brother Robert went to live with her grandparents, and the two other siblings, older siblings, were adopted. Judy's dad eventually remarried, and then Judy and Robert went with him and his new wife. According to Judy, it was miserable living with her dad and stepmom. And she reported that it was just super abusive. So her whole childhood was just inconsistencies, uh, abuse, blah, blah, blah. Mm. She reported her dad and stepmom beat her. And as an adolescent, they starved her and forced her to work like super long hours, I'm assuming, on the farm. And when she was 14, she spent two months in prison for throwing hot grease on her dad. Whoa. And attacking her stepmom and her asshole stepbrothers. Wow. When she was released, she said, I don't want to go back to them. So she decided to go to this reform school Mm -hmm. in Albuquerque, and she graduated at 16. So her family sucked. Judy agrees. In reference to her brother, Robert, she quoted, I wouldn't spit down his throat if his guts were on fire. Her first job was in 1960 when she was a nursing assistant in Roswell. And she went by Anna Schultz. In 1961, she gave birth to a son named Michael Schultz. She won't tell anyone who the dad was. But it was rumored that he was some sort of like high uh, pilot or something. So she married her first husband, James Goodyear, in 1962. Any relation to the tires? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. Are you really rich? So they had a child named James Jr. And then James Goodyear adopted Michael her son. James and Judy had a daughter in 1967 named Kimberly. And at this time, they had moved to Orlando, Florida. Judy opened her first business called Conway Acres Child Care Center. And her husband paid for it. Like John Goodyear was financing it. Mm. John Goodyear Sr. was sent to Vietnam. And three months after he got back home, he was hospitalized for just having some like really weird symptoms. Like he was really sick. He died on in 1971. And Judy cashed three life insurance policies. Ooh. At the end of that year, their house burned down mysteriously. And she got $90,000 in insurance. And then by 1972, she had moved in with her new boyfriend, Bobby Joe Morris. After she married Bobby Joe, Michael started having some behavior problems at school. And he was also a little behind in learning. She was able to get him into some kind of like residential foster care for a while. And then Bobby Joe moved Judy and the rest of the kids to Colorado. So before they moved to Colorado, however, another house burned down. And they got another insurance payout. Oh, my goodness. Sounds like some fraud happening. Soon after they moved to Colorado, Bobby Joe got sick and was admitted to the hospital. So this is 1978. There's a pattern. So... The co- reason why he was sick, like they weren't able to give him like a diagnosis and he was discharged. But two days after he was discharged, he collapsed and he was taken back, but he died. And then she, once again, Judy got the life insurance money. So Bobby Joe's family noticed something was weird and they suspected that he had been murdered and like he probably wasn't the only one. In 1974, Bobby and Judy were in Bobby Joe's hometown of Alabama where they learned that a man had been found dead in a hotel room and his family suspected that they had something to do with it. So they got an anonymous call from a payphone. The police did, um, which led them to the hotel room where the body was found. And it's reported that Bobby Joe's mom had overheard Judy saying the son of a bitch shouldn't come shouldn't have come up here in the first place. 
He knew if he came up here, he was going to die. Yeah. So on his deathbed, Bobby Joe confessed to being part of the killing. However, the police couldn't find anything to connect them to it. In 1978, Judy legally changed her name and Michael's name to Bueno Año. Oh, my God. Yeah. As, as, a, as a, a guest, she wanted to pay a tribute to James, who died. The family, after that, moved back to Pensacola, Florida. God, yeah, I'm still just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So Michael Bueno Año, who now goes by Bueno Año. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, my God. He wasn't doing well in school and he joined the army in 1979. He was based in Georgia, but he started to show signs of an illness and was diagnosed as suffering from arsenic poisoning, which rapidly his like arms and legs started to atrophy and he could lost functioning. So he had to be wear like heavy metal braces on his arms and legs Damn. and he required like his mom's help. On May 13th, 1980, Judy took Michael and James Bueno Año canoeing and fishing on the East River in Florida, but their canoe ended up capsizing. So James and Judy were able to get out, but Michael was weighed down by his heavy braces on his arms and legs and he Oh, drowned. no. So uh, some fishermen saw James and Judy, like, holding themselves up on the canoe. Fuck. And they were telling them that they couldn't find Michael. Fuck. Because he had the braces and he, like, sunk. What the fuck? Why would you? <sighs> well, his body was found a quarter mile up the river. And James said he'd had no recollection of what happened. He was knocked out. Um, And Judy had a bunch of stories. Like, she said, you know, there was a snake in the boat or they hit a fishing log or, like, their fishing... Like they're they hit like a log oh, or their fishing lines caught shit. up in trees. So I don't know. The police, you know, believed Judy's account of what happened, but since Michael Buenoani was in the army, the army investigators started an investigation, but they didn't really believe it. But she got twenty thousand dollars of his life insurance from the military, but there were also several other policies outside of the military on his life. Oh my god. So handwriting up or Experts. Handwriting analysis showed that on those insurance applications that Michael's signature was forged. After Michael Jr.'s death, Judy opened up a hair salon in Gulf Breeze, Florida called Fingers and Faces. Oh, my God. This lady is not right in a lot of ways. And there's many signs to show that her mom was part of a fake tribe of some latina ethnic background mesquite something which yeah mesquite like apache bueno año good year come on Jeez. fingers and faces she's not right man it just doesn't sound appealing i don't want to go like what is there but anyway she started dating this business guy named Jane, john gentry the second so she started dating this john gentry jr she told him that she had all these qualifications which were all fake including that she was a senior nurse like head nurse in florida she somehow got him to take out a life insurance policy on e on each other and this occurred in 1982 and then she later on increased the value of his life insurance policy to five hundred thousand dollars oh my. so she she was like hey let's both get life insurance policies on each other you know you never know what's gonna happen mm -hmm. and she went and increased it Fuck. yeah well, she also somehow got him to take these vitamin capsules that made him feel like nauseous and dizzy. What the fuck? Yeah. And when he complained about those side effects, Judy was like, double it. Yeah, there you go. So in June 1983, Judy announced that she and John Gentry were going to have a baby. And so John went out to go get some champagne to celebrate. 
Well, when he started a car, the car, it like a bomb exploded and he was seriously injured. But after four days of being in the hospital, he was finally well enough to answer some questions to the police. Is there a banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> I don't know. What the fuck? Yeah. That's my worst fear now. I'm going to check it all. So the police asked some questions to kind of go over Judy's background in like really big, like almost minute by minute detail. So there was a lot of inconsistencies about what John believed. And then what police found out was actually like reality. Oh, shit. John finds out that Judy has like no medical qualifications. Also, she was not pregnant. And she booked a cruise for herself and her children after he was bombed. She also started telling people that John had a terminal illness. And it turns out that those vitamin capsules were arsenic. Mm. They had arsenic in them. However, there was not enough evidence to charge her with attempted murder. But during a search of her house, they found wire and tape in her bedroom that matched the remains left over from the bomb. Whoa. Yeah. They also traced where the dynamite to a link through Judy's telephone records. Judy was arrested and then bailed out for an attempted murder charge on John Gentry after they found the remaining evidence of the vitamins that had arsenic and the bomb stuff. In January 1984, she was arrested again and charged with first degree murder for her son Michael's death. In February of that year, the body of um, Bobby Joe was exhumed and they found arsenic. Oh, my God. It was um, they also exhumed John Goodyear's body that March and it also had arsenic. Mm. So Judy was tried separately for each murder and oh. for the attempted murder. She was sentenced to life imprisonment without possibility of parole for Michael's murder. But she was acquitted of the charge of the attempted murder. But she was found guilty of first degree murder for her first husband, James Goodyear. So it took the jury 10 and a half hours to deliberate and come up with a sentence of death by electrocution on November 8, 1985. So Colorado prosecutors decided not to continue with the case over the murder of Bobby Joe because she was already under the death sentence in Florida. Mm. So they estimated that she collected around $240,000 of life insurance policies from the deaths of her husband, son, and boyfriend in Colorado. That so it's not a lot of money. No. Judy spent 13 years in Broward Correctional Facili- Center at Pembroke Pines in Florida. She tried to appeal and had three death warrants handed down over those years. She spent her time confined to a six by nine by nine and a half foot high cell. All right. So executions in Florida are carried out by the state penitent in the state penitentiary at Stark. And prior to 2000, all of them were carried out on a 75 year old electric chair. Isn't that crazy? Gross. Yeah. So Judy's last appeal was turned down on March 29th, 1988. I'm sorry, 1998. And then um, the governor signed her death warrant. She was transferred to Stark and confined to a 12 by 7 foot cell. She All she had was a small black and white television and she watched it through the bars. That was like adjacent to the execution room. So she had that view. Oh, God. Yeah. So her final hours were spent seeing her kids, her adult children at this time, as well as mother relatives and some religious advisors and her like lawyer and stuff. Her cousin who visited her before the execution said she 
is quoted saying she had no fear at all. She's mostly afraid of leaving her children and how upset they were. She did a television interview a few days before she was executed and she said, I would like to clear the record for my grandson. I would like for him to know that his grandmother was not a murderer. But... All right. Her execution was set for 7 a.m. on Monday, March 30th, 1998. At 4.30 a.m., she was showered and dressed. They shaved her head. Mm. Her final mirror, her final mirror was broccoli. Meal? Her <laughs> final meal was broccoli, asparagus, strawberries, and hot tea. Gross. I'm sorry. No. What the fuck? She entered the execution chamber at 7.02 a.m. accompanied by several guards. She's this like frail, tiny ass lady. Like the production. She was strapped to the chair with eight leather straps over her waist, wrist, chest and legs. The calf and headpiece electrodes were fitted each containing moistened sponge to reduce burning of the flesh. Mm. If you're worried about people, no, this. Oh my God. Asked if she had a final statement. She replied, no, sir. Squeezing her eyes shut and keeping them shut. She didn't look at any witnesses on the other side of the glass partition. A leather mask was placed over her face. And at the signal from the warden, the automatic electrocution cycle commenced at 708. So there was apparently, um, a small white amount of like smoke coming up from her right leg. Aww. Yeah, but there were no flames. She was pronounced dead at 7.13 a.m. And in an interview afterwards, a prison spokesman said she was very solemn. This is the first time I've seen that expression on her. She stared straight ahead, made no visible expression. So Judy's execution was the third of four carried out in Florida from March 23rd, 1998 to March 31st, 1998. She was dubbed the Black Widow at her trial in Pensacola by the prosecutor. And that name was just like, of course, exploited by the media. Mm -hmm. The Black Widow killer executed today. It's Mm -hmm. like completely dehumanizes. Um, Okay. So the detective in Pensacola who went through all of her, like her past, like her abusive childhood and like the trail of insurance scams. He said, Judy just went one murder too far. If she just let that last boyfriend alone, she would probably would have walked away from the other murders. Whoa. He described her as the coldest killer I ever knew. It seems that once a person has um, committed the first murder, each other murder is just easier to do. It's mm-hmm. like once you break that seal, then she just couldn't walk away. And that is the story of Judy Bueno Año, <laughs> a.k.a. Judy Welty, Judy Goodyear, Ann Schultz. Yeah, wow. What? I just think there's something there that's lit off with her that, well, I, I don't know. Like, some, she completely just tried to not be, I can't even think of what I want to say. Yeah, that's weird. Okay, here we go. I've never seen High School Musical. How did that come up? You guys were shit-faced, hammered, grown-ass adults who were like, let's watch High School Musical. Nathan made me watch it. <laughs> I did not. He was like, you've never seen High School Musical? Click. Yes. Oh! I didn't like it. So, I mean, like, well, I'm old now. We liked it when we were 13. I never watched it. You liked it when... I never... No, my best friend was obsessed. Rachel, his sister. Rachel, his sister. (laughs) But I never... I think I watched it in choir just because it was choir, but I could not tell you the characters' names. I couldn't sing you a song. I know Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens came Mm -hmm. out of it. Bless. Bless. Zach Efron. And Vanessa Hudgens. What was she just in? Uh, Bad Boys. Oh, that's right. Uh, it was really good. Yeah. Ashley Tisdale, whoever that is. 
Irish don't Sharpay is a name, right? Yeah. Oh. Is it Sharpay? Yes. I was thinking, it's a dog that's kind of fancy. Uh-huh. Those are like the really wrinkly dogs. Mm-hmm. I follow <laughs> I follow this Instagram called Tonka the Bear, and it's a long hair bear coat Sharpay. What? Yeah. I Maybe I shouldn't show you. You'll go get one. No, I won't. But I really can't picture it. Like, they don't need a lot of grooming. Okay, well, that was fun. Now let's get back to fucking business. This, this with another fucking horrible story. Yeah. All right. Let me tell you about Teresa Wilson. Teresa Wilson... She was born April 26th, 1969. She grew up in poverty in Danville, Virginia, where her parents both worked in a textile mill. Teresa sang in a church during her youth, and at 16, she dropped out of school and married a man that, sh- man that she met at that church. Mm. They had one daughter, Krista. Sorry. How old was this man? Does not say. Ew. She was 16. Yeah, gross. Um, what state was it? In Virginia. In 69. Um, so they had one daughter, Christy Lynn Bean, but the marriage soon ended in divorce, after which Teresa turned to alcohol and painkillers. Mm. Her mother-in-law, Marie Bean, described Teresa as, quote, not right. I just thought of something to talk about. Sorry, I'm just... Yeah, write that notes. down because... <laughs> <laughs> After working dozens of low-paying jobs, Teresa Wilson-Bean eventually found work in the spring of 2000 at the Dan River Textile Mill, where her supervisor was Julian Clifton. <laughs> if you want to know what's fucking hilarious right now... What? Is, remember when I did the replace all... The, oh, no. the last name it changed his last name to Teresa. I was like, Julian Clifton Teresa Jr. What? <laughs> no. Um Julian Clifton Wilson Jr. Teresa Jr. <laughs> That's the name of this episode. Teresa Jr. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> He was, oh God. <laughs> I can't talk about someone who's dead when I'm laughing my ass off. How now, brown cow? How now, brown cow? Oh, it's how now? I would say ow now. I did too time. until I saw on screen text of how now, brown cow. What were you watching? Love is Blind. Because <laughs> I knew exactly what you were talking about. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So I just learned that yesterday, uh, February 24th, 2020. <laughs> right? That's what Nope. Yesterday was the 20th. Oh, God. <laughs> Why are you also living in future four days ahead? Center. Bless. So she married. <laughs> I look straight at Julian Clifton, Teresa Jr. He was a recent widower with three children. <laughs> <laughs> widower. <laughs> Jesus tits. Spectacles. Testicles. Wallet watch. No, it's really not. Okay. And I just typed a bunch of shit. I don't know what. He was a recent widower with three children, Jason, Charles, and Kathy. Teresa and fucking <laughs> don't do it. I just won't look at you. Because I feel like I'm starting it. Teresa and her 16-year-old daughter, Christy, moved into Julian's home in 2000, and the two married soon after. In December 2001, Julian's older son, Jason... (laughs) (laughs) Jason did Teresa. (laughs) (laughs) I know they're Jason Clifton, Teresa. Fuck, it's gonna keep happening. (laughs) Just change them all back (laughs) to... 
I didn't even remember in my head because usually I try to do it mentally, but then it sounds like I can't read because I'm like pausing to flip the yeah. name. Um, <laughs> oh no. I'm about to make us stop laughing. Okay. In December 2001, Julian's older son, Jason Clifton Wilson, was killed in a car accident, leaving his father $200,000 from a life insurance policy. Man. Julian used this money to buy a manufactured home on five acres of land in Pennsylvania County, Virginia. In August 2002, Julian's younger son, Charles J. Uh, Charles J. Wilson. Um, it says Charles J. Teresa. <laughs> in August 2002, Julian's younger son, Charles J. Wilson, obtained a $250,000 insurance policy in preparation for his impending deployment to Iraq as part of the United States Army Reserve. Charles designated his father as the primary and Teresa Wilson as the secondary beneficiaries. In the fall of 2002, Teresa met 21-year-old Matthew Jesse Schallenberger and 19-year-old Rodney Lamont Fuller at a Walmart. How old was she at this time? She was born in 69. So she was like in her 40s. Okay. She met a 20. Uh -huh. Teresa began a sexual relationship with Jesse, the 21-year-old. Uh, she began modeling lingerie for both men and was eventually having intersex, intersex <laughs> intercourse with them both. She was Yikes. getting it on. Jesse wanted to be the head of an illegal drug distribution ring, but he needed money to get started. Big dreams. Oh, wow. If that failed to work out for him, his <laughs> next goal was, was to become a nationally recognized hitman for the mafia. <laughs> Which one was this? The 21-year-old Jesse Schallenberger. The 21-year-old. He's delusional. <laughs> He's watched too many fucking movies. Good lord. He's watched the... What's that fucking movie with the mini Coopers and they rob the fuck... They do the heist. Fuck, I don't remember. Uh, Rodney, on the other hand, didn't talk much about any of his future goals. He seemed content just following Jesse around. Hmm. Teresa introduced her 16-year-old daughter to the men, and while parked at a parking lot, her daughter and Rodney fucked in one car, while Teresa and Jesse fucked in another car. Wow. So she had her daughter statutorily raped by this man. Rodney was 19, her daughter's 16. It's still fucking That's gross. still... You're in one car and your daughter's in another That's car? That's from... You know where my head went? To those fucking... That weird-ass fucked-up family at the fucking parade. Yep. That's, that's some that, weird-ass shit. Yeah. In October 2002, Charles came home on a visit from Army Training in Maryland. On October 23rd, Jesse and Rodney were given $1,200 by Teresa to purchase firearms and ammunition to kill Julian Wilson and his son Charles for the insurance money. Hmm. Their first attempt to kill Julian while on the road didn't succeed. Didn't look much into that. I can't imagine what the fuck they tried to do, run him off the road. Seriously. A week later, on the night of October 30th, Jesse and Rodney entered the Wilson's trailer through a back door that Teresa had left open. While she waited in the kitchen, Jesse shot the sleeping Julian several times while Rodney shot Charles in his bedroom with a shotgun. After discovering Charles was not dead, Rodney shot him twice more. Uh. Teresa waited 45 minutes before calling for help, and while waiting for the police to arrive, she removed money from her dying husband's wallet. Jesus she divided Christ. the 300 bucks from the wallet with the two men before they left. Around 3.55 a.m., Teresa called called 911 and reported that a man had broken into her home at approximately 3.15 or 3.30. She went on to say that the intruder had entered the bedroom where she and her husband were sleeping 
he and her husband told her to get up, so she followed his instructions to go to the bathroom, locked herself in the bathroom, and then she heard four or five gunshots. But they were two different guns, right? Yeah. So shotgun. She actually does say shotgun blasts, but I said gunshots. Gunshot. <laughs> sheriff's, sheriff's deputies arrived at the the Teresa home. Oh God. <laughs> sheriff's deputies arrived at the arrived at the Wilson home at approximately four eighteen a.m. Teresa told the deputies that her husband's body was on the floor in the master bedroom and that her stepson's body was in the other bedroom. When the officers entered the master bedroom, however, they found Julian severely wounded but still alive and talking. Apparently, oh, wow. apparently he was like moaning and like saying baby, baby, baby. Uh, Julian told the officers his wife knew who shot him and he died not long afterwards. Damn. When informed that Julian and CJ were dead, Teresa didn't appear to the officers to be upset. Shortly after, Teresa Wilson was caught attempting to withdraw 50000 from her dead husband's account with a forged check. Good lord. Within a week, she confessed to law enforcement officers that she had offered money to have her husband killed. During the investigation, prosecutors found that Teresa had been trying to gather the assets of her late husband and stepson even before they'd been buried. Wow. Investigators interviewed Teresa. In one interview, she claimed Julian had physically assaulted her a few days before the murders. Even so, she denied killing him or having any knowledge about who might have killed him. Teresa also told the investigators that she and Julian had talked and prayed together that night. When Julian had gone to bed, she went to the kitchen to pack his lunch for the next day. Investigators found a lunch bag in the refrigerator with an attached note that read, I love you. I hope you have a good day. She'd also drawn a picture of a smiley fist on the bag and had written inside I miss you and you're gone. Creepy. Teresa called Julian's daughter, Kathy, on the night of the murders and told her that she had already made the necessary arrangements with the funeral home, but that she needed the names of some of Julian's family members. She told Kathy that it wasn't necessary for her to come to the funeral home the following day. So Kathy showed up anyways. Teresa told her that she was the sole beneficiary of everything and that money was no longer an object. Later that same morning, Teresa called Julian's supervisor, Mike Campbell, and told him that Julian had been murdered. She asked if she could pick up Julian's paycheck. He told her the check would be ready by 4 p.m., but Teresa never showed up. She also told Kathy that she was a secondary beneficiary of his military life insurance policy. They told her that she'd be contacted within 24 hours to know like when she would receive the death benefit money. On the day of the funerals, Teresa called Julian's daughter Kathy prior to the services. She told Kathy she'd had her hair and nails done and she had bought a beautiful suit to wear to the funeral. During the conversation, she also asked if Kathy was interested in buying Julian's mobile home. Invic- <laughs> <laughs> Investigators learned that Teresa had had tried to withdraw $50,000. Detectives also learned Teresa was aware of how much money she would receive upon the deaths of her husband and stepson. Months before their deaths, she was overheard telling a friend the amounts of the cash payouts coming to her. Should Julian and CJ die? Dumbass. See, I had a feeling she already calculated that and then was like, huh, worth it. Right. Five days after the murder, Teresa called Lieutenant Booker to request she had been given his personal effects. Lieutenant Booker told her that they would be given to his sister, his immediate next of kin, which Mm -hmm. pissed her off. And she continued to press this issue. When Lieutenant Booker refused to budge, she again asked about the life insurance money, reminding him again that she was the secondary beneficiary. When Lieutenant Booker told her that she would be entitled to the life insurance, Teresa responded, That's fine. 
Kathy can have all of his effects as long as I get the money. Wow. On November 7th, 2002, investigators again met with Teresa Wilson and presented all the evidence that they had against her. She then confessed she had offered Jesse money to kill Julian. She said that Jesse had expected to receive half the insurance money, but that she changed her mind and decided that she wanted to keep all of it for herself. She accompanied investigators to Jesse's home where she identified him as her co-conspirator. The following day, Teresa admitted that she had not been totally honest. She confessed to Ron. Bonnie's involvement in the murders and that her 16-year-old daughter had assisted with planning the murder. When a lawyer is handed a murder case as heinous as Teresa's case was, their goal goes from like, oh, I gotta prove this person innocent to I gotta save this person from getting sentenced to death. Under Virginia law, if a defendant pleads guilty to capital murder, the judge conducts the sentencing proceeding without a jury. If the defendant pleads not guilty, the trial court may determine the case only with the consent of the defendant and concurrence of the Commonwealth. Teresa's appointed lawyers David Furrow and Thomas Blaylock had a lot of experience in capital murder cases and knew that the appointed trial judge had never imposed the death penalty on a capital defendant. They also knew that the judge would be sentencing Rodney to life imprisonment under a plea agreement that he had made with the prosecution were Teresa to testify against Jesse and Rodney. Also, they had hoped that the judge would show leniency since Teresa had eventually cooperated with investigators and turned over the identities of Jesse and Rodney and even her daughter as a accomplices. Based on this and the heinous facts that had surfaced in the murder for hire, Teresa's lawyers felt that her best chance to avoid the death penalty was just to plead guilty, invoke her statutory right to be sentenced by the judge, and so Teresa agreed. Prior to Teresa's plea, she went through a competency assessment by Barbara G. Haskins, a board-certified forensic psychiatrist. She also took an IQ test. According to Dr. Haskins, the testing showed that Teresa had a full-scale IQ of 72, Mm. which placed her in the borderline range of intellect functioning, Mm -hmm. but not at or below the level of mental retardation. The psychiatrist reported that Teresa was competent to enter the pleas and that that she was able to understand and appreciate the possible outcome. The judge questioned Teresa, making sure that she understood that she was waiving her right to a jury. Satisfied that she understood, he scheduled the sentencing proceedings. So during the murder trial, the judge deemed Teresa the mastermind of the crime and called her, quote, the head of the serpent. Wow. Barbara G. Haskins... The psychiatrist stated that cognitive testing showed a full-scale IQ of 72, verbal IQ of 70, and performance IQ was 79. So and that's normal, all borderline yeah, of intellectual the, disability. So borderline is 71 to 84. Okay. Dr. Haskins also stated that Teresa Lewis was and is able to make a plea agreement and enter pleas. Teresa's lawyer stated that she's not mentally retarded, but she's very close to it. Mm. In addition to a low IQ, Teresa was said by her lawyer to have an addiction to pain pills and three mm. different forensic psychologists experts diagnosed her with dependent personality disorder. That doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. But it sounds like she had a substance use yeah. problem, which probably contributed to her brain functioning. Right. Based upon the vileness of the crimes, the judge sentenced Teresa to death. Man. It becomes then like an argument of understanding like right and wrong. And I think that they could probably prove that she did. The judge said that his decision was made more difficult by the fact that she cooperated with the investigation and she'd mm. pled guilty. But as the wife and stepmother to the victim, she'd engaged in a, quote, cold-blooded and pitiless slaying of two men for profit, which, quote, fits the definition of an outrageous or wantonly vile or horrible act. He said that she had lured men and her juvenile daughter into her web of deceit and sex and greed and murder. And within an incredibly short period of time from meeting the men, she had recruited them, been involved in planning and completing these murders. And within one week before the actual murders, she had already made a failed attempt 
on Julian's life, calling her the, quote, head of this serpent. He said he was convinced that Teresa waited until she thought Julian was dead before she called the police and that she allowed him to suffer without any feelings at all with absolute coldness. God. So Teresa was executed on September 23rd, 2010 at 9 p.m. by lethal injection at Greensville Correctional Center in Jarrett, Virginia. Fuck, I don't know how you would say that. A lot of R's and T's. <laughs> a lot of confidence. <laughs> Asked if she had any last words, Lewis said, I just want Kathy to know I love her and I'm very sorry. Kathy Clifton, the daughter of Julian Lewis and sister of C.J. Lewis, attended the execution. Teresa was the first female to be executed in the state of Virginia since 1912 and the first female in the state to die by lethal injection. Wow. So Schallenberger and Fuller were sentenced to life in prison. Schallenberger committed suicide in prison in 2006. So I thought that if you plead guilty, you don't to capital murder, they don't sentence you to death. Virginia says different. At least they did then. Um, She waived her right to a jury trial. Oh. And the judge right. got to choose life from prison. Right, right. What death. a dick. Yeah. Christy Lynn Bean, Teresa's daughter, served five years in prison because she had knowledge of the murder plot but failed to report it. So there was a lot of public outrage about her execution, obviously, because of her mm-hmm. intellectual intellectuality. Yeah. Exactly. And I wanted to put more in about that, but I got sidetracked when someone ate my lasagna. Oh. <laughs> so, well, cut it short. And that is the story of Teresa Lewis. Uh, so that source was so uh, it was Teresa Wilson Lewis versus Barbara J. Wheeler the warden of Fluvanna Correctional Center for Women. Hmm. Man, that has a lot of questionable things. Yeah. Like, well, you got to think it's like what happened to her daughter pretty much happened to her at that same age. So she was forced to like grow up at 16. She had married. So on the website Save Teresa Lewis run by supporters who tried to have her death sentence commuted, a message was posted in which Lewis thanked them for their work on her behalf. They also posted a farewell that she'd recently written to fellow inmates. Man wants me to die, but I'm not worrying over this. I'm trusting Jesus, she wrote. She urged the prisoners to turn to Jesus, promising, He will forgive you of all your sins and he will bring you into his loving arms. Those opposed to her death sentence said that the fact she was a woman would not allow her to be treated differently. Mm. What they found troublesome was that she had an IQ of 72 and was borderline she received a more severe sense than those who'd actually pulled the trigger yeah like they actually went in there and did it right quote it would be grossly unfair if the one person among those involved who is probably the least dangerous to society who is certainly no more guilty than those who carried out the murders and whose disabilities call out for mercy is the only person scheduled to die for this crime said the executive director of the death penalty information center which is awesome and they have a podcast Hmm. why he wrote in an op-ed article for the washington post did the trigger men get life without parole while lewis received a sentence of death ostensibly it is because she was the ringleader and thus more culpable. But what could make a killer more culpable than repeatedly shooting a sleeping victim? Well, and also last week we I shared about Kelly Gissendanner and she also didn't actually murder. Right. She she received death and Greg Owen got life with a, yeah. with the possibility of parole soon like he he could be out in 3 years. Mhm. Isn't that that's 
It doesn't make Illogical. sense. I mean, it's different states, but still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mm. logic is skewed. Yeah. And it seems like it just goes down to like that thing of women aren't supposed to do that. So we have to maybe give her a harsher sentence because she strayed so far from the binary of women that maybe. put her in her place. Yeah. Literally, you can't exist anymore. Yeah. Wow. It's heavy. Mm-hmm. Heavy. Something else that's pretty heavy. Did you watch um, The Pharmacist? Yes. I I haven't finished it yet because I'm sidetracked, but it's good. Apparently they interview the excuse me, the doctor. Mm. So we'll see. Can't imagine what kind of lies. Well, apparently it's the woman, right? Yeah. I mean, this isn't a spoiler. You can look up this information, but you don't have to watch the pharmacist to know. So I'm not mm-hmm. smelling shit. She like got in some accident and suffered like brain damage and spinal damage. Oh shit. So ironically, I wonder if she's on pain management. Oh, I bet. Also, what else did I finish recently? The The, Sinner. Really? That's a good one. Oh, wait. Which season? Both. I didn't finish season two. Really? I don't know. I just... It was weird. Yeah. Season one, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. They go a little bit more into the detective's background. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, Falling for a Killer on Amazon. Oh, I'm, Ted Bundy. I've only watched one episode. No, I've watched two now, but so fucking good. And I don't know why I've always had like a specific interest in Ted Bundy. And like, I've always been like so pissed that he was executed just because I feel like he would have been a good subject matter f- on, yeah. you know, to study. I don't know. He um, still is. But and just also just the depravity and how how he was able to escape and fool everybody mm-hmm. but somehow in all the books and shit that i've read it's in even Anne rule i didn't get this type of perspective of the women and how it was for all women of that time and like how that goes into the way women were victimized then and how all of us are kind of like what the fuck was going on in the 60s and 70s with all these fucking murderers killing young girls mm-hmm. and women and it's like well watch this fucking documentary because it's fucking amazing and these women need to be heard yeah and I sobbed like so hard. It's powerful because it, I think it brings attention, a pe- important piece that no one talked about before, like you said. And it's done in a way that it, that might, maybe that's the piece that people need to hear about in order to kind of understand it. And maybe we can stop talking about Ted Bundy and actually talk about how some of those issues are still very much present today. And maybe we can start that conversation. Exactly. Ugh. Because quite honestly, I'm tired of talking about him. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I want to watch it, but I've been hesitant to because it's like, again, I... And, and I know everybody is, so is, but I just still, like, there. that is, like, the thing that was missing. Like, I'm finally getting mm-hmm. this. It went out. I don't know why I just handed it to you. I meant to grab a lighter. <laughs> <laughs> it went out. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> Reflex. What else? Oh. Oh. The palate cleanser can be Love is Blind, everybody. Please fucking watch fucking it. Fucking watch Love is Blind. We need to talk about this. I think. Look at how our levels went up as soon as we start talking about it. I think it. we just need to make a Love is Blind podcast. With Anaja. Yeah. Yeah. We can easily do it. We'll just mail her this mic. She'll Skype with us and record and just send me her audio. Trademark. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright. All rights reserved. 
don't think that we won't use the end of this like this um, <laughs> and put it on the podcast already. So we've already started recording it. So absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to the Love is Blind podcast where, wait, it's got to be a play on words. It'll come to us. Mm-hmm. There's something there. There's something there. And then we just stopped talking because we're <laughs> thinking about it. Oh, my God. Marielle has a camera on her Alexa. I've so actually never done it on my show. Alexa, show me the living room camera. <laughs> We're about to see what's going on in the living. I think we might need to brace ourselves. Yeah. I need to get home. All right. Well, thank you for listening, tuning in again. Thanks for hanging in there. (laughs) Episode 17. Whoa. Hey, it's almost our coming of age episode. Oh, God. 18. What can you do? Like, what privileges do you gain? Quote unquote privileges do you gain when you turn 18 anymore? Nothing. Because if you're 21 to buy cigarettes. No, it's literally just like marriage Ugh. and sex. Yeah. But how do you, can you be to buy a vape? Because I see like 12 year olds with fucking it's vapes. 21. What the fuck? Yeah. Disgusting. Disgusting. All right. Anyway. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye.